Now it's time to read from the Word of God. Tonight, we're back in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to start at verse 11, just to give a little bit of the context, and then read through chapter 7, verse 24. Genesis 6, starting at verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And so God looked upon the earth, And indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. This is how you should make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark on its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself all of of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven, each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. So Noah, with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth, two by two. They went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass, after seven days, that the waters of the flood were on the earth, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, 
and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now the flood was on the earth forty days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters, and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed fifteen cubits upward, and the mountains were covered, and all flesh died that moved on the earth birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is the word of the Lord. Today's text describes the biggest interruption in the history of the world, and I say that without exaggeration. Most of us can recall the the global shutdown during the recent pandemic. Life in virtually every country and every community shut down in 2020 for weeks, for months, even Uh, for more than a year. But this text talks about a much larger interruption. This place in the Bible has, uh, it's interesting, there there are more dates, there are more specific durations with numbers attached to them than than almost any other place in the entire Bible. The scripture here is recording the timing between Adam and Noah, and then chapter 7, verse 6, you've got the age of Noah when the flood begins, Chapter 7, verse 11, the month and the day when the rain starts. Verse 12, the number of days of rain. Verse 24, the number of days the earth was an ocean planet. And and there's more. Those are just some of the the durations and the dates recorded there. The amount of timing information and and dating information that's supplied, it it almost seems to, to give these details in order to establish the truth of the mind-boggling scale of of all of these events, the passage is not presenting just one astounding event. We're looking at multiple events. Each one of them singularly are, they would seem crazy. They They would seem impossible to imagine. One of the huge events, this construction of a of a floating wooden water box, the ark, and it's big enough to hold eight people and a male and female specimen from every species of land and air animal. That, that in and of itself, astounding. There's another seemingly impossible event. There's the arrival of two of every kind of animal on the planet arriving at the building site of the ark, as if some Pied Piper had, had played a tune that just instinctively two by two, drew these animals to Noah. Another astounding, huge surprise, the volume of water that comes down from the sky and comes up from the earth and floods the world so that even the mountains are underwater. That's astounding. And and then you've got one more thing. You've got this mass extinction event 
of all humanity, everyone, everyone dies except for the eight people in that ark. Now, could all of that have happened? Could that have happened? Well, the numerous time details make it clear that this account is a literal presentation. It's not figurative. It's not trying to be poetic. But could that have all happened? Well, sure. Take the construction of this floating wooden box, 150 yards long, 25 yards wide, 15 yards high. Several such arcs of those same dimensions, made of wood, have been built today, over the past 40 years. One of them has even floated in the water. So, yes, that's not impossible. And we also now know that the ancient Egyptians, we have records at least of sea vessels that they built that were about half the size. So we're not talking about a scale that is impossible. And, and could the earth be covered with water? Could that happen? Well, what, what do the climate scientists tell us about ocean rise projections? And now, we also hear that mainstream scientists today, they're wondering if there are oceans worth of water below, hundreds of miles below the surface of the earth. That's mainstream science. And, and how about this? Could, could, the, could the entire human race be wiped out? by a global event. I mean, you can just count the possible ways. There's disease. There's nuclear war. There's even asteroid strikes. My, if you can call it favorite, my my favorite planetary disaster scenario, it it involves a simulation that's been done of, of what would happen if just, if the moon itself, our moon, broke apart. Maybe it got hit by uh, an, an asteroid and it broke apart. That's, it's an amazing, astonishing uh, simulation. Now, if you've grown up in church, or if you've read the first seven chapters of the Bible, Noah, the ark, the flood, it's a very familiar account. The, the details are so memorable. And in some ways, it's more plausible than it is extraordinary. And so tonight, we look at three things. We look at a divine judgment, a divine judgment. Secondly, we look at a gracious covenant, a divine judgment, a gracious covenant, and then thirdly, a cleansing flood. Let's start with the divine judgment. Uh, this is chapter 6, really starting at verse 5, which we covered some last week. Uh, chapter 6, verses 5 through 17. And as you read through the Bible, this passage, it's, it's something of a plot twist. What we see here tonight and what we've read is the God who created the world is also the God who will destroy that same world. Genesis 6, verse 7, God says, I will destroy humans whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast. I am sorry that I have made them. Now, it's quite a change. You'll remember how in the first chapter of Genesis, God created this masterful, dazzling world of beauty, of life, of pleasure, And when he looked at it, when he saw it, he he uttered these famous words. God saw that it was good, but now it's changed. And so here, chapter 6, verse 12, God looks at it, his creation. He looks upon the earth, and indeed, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And so the creator God will be 
the destroyer God. Verse 13, he says, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, it's interesting that the word in Hebrew that he uses in verse 12 when he says the, the, the earth is corrupt, they have corrupted it. He, he uses this, this, this word for destruction, corruption, it's, it's shachat. And it's the same, he's saying there to, to people, because you have destroyed yourselves, shachat, and you've destroyed the world, I will finish what you've begun and I will destroy the same word, shachat, destroy you all. And so there's something of a, uh, not wordplay, but he's, he's doubling up. And it's almost what you could call this talionic justice. What they've done to correct it, he will do to them. So in our, in our suspicious parts, hearts, when, when you hear this, you, you may be tempted to think, when you're being suspicious about God, you may be tempted to think, God is someone who's, wow, he seems like he's very easily provoked to wrath. But in reality, what you see here is we're the ones who bring it on ourselves. We begin it and we bring it on ourselves. God's justice, it really just completes what we've done to ourselves. And the timing here tells us that God is not impulsive. He's anything but impulsive. He's very patient. Genesis 5, 32. Noah is 500 years old when he begets his sons. And then when he turns 600, the flood comes. And, and in our chapter, what, we've, what we see is when he begets his sons, that's when it appears that God speaks to him and says, build the ark. And so for 100 years, God delays 100 years of putting up with this corruption. He delays as Noah builds the giant ark, as he collects the food and the supplies. And all that while, for that whole 100 years, society is not on pause. People are sowing and continuing to sow their societal violence, their corruption, and God is bearing, patiently bearing with a, a century of worldwide sin, and he's just waiting. He's waiting. God is patient. And so here's the lesson. Here's another lesson. You, you can't escape consequences. When you do wrong, you can't escape the consequences. The universe that God made, it's intrinsically Moral. The universe that he made, it is tuned. It's tuned uh, with laws of, of matter and energy, but it's also tuned morally. It's tuned to righteousness. And so when wrongdoing occurs in this universe that he made, whether it's cheating, whether it's hating, whether it's lying, wrongdoing sows poison in the soil. Wrongdoing in this world, this moral universe that God made, it cracks the windows. It starts a crack that will keep on opening up. And de- decades ago, a-, a friend of mine, speaking about how we reap what we sow, you can't escape the consequences. A friend of mine passed on some, some marriage advice that she had received from her pastor. The pastor had said, your marriage, and, and they were relatively newly married. He said, your marriage is like a giant tree. Just imagine uh, the size of the, the thick, the strong trunk. And so, It's strong, it will stand, but every time that you speak a bitter word to each other, every act of retaliating against one another or insulting one another, when that happens, every one of those acts, you make a little cut in the tree. And and a marriage can take a few of those cuts and it'll still be strong, it'll be healthy. But if you add them up, 
And, and, and if you have quarrel after quarrel without resolution, and, and coldness and disdain become more the norm than out of the ordinary, all those cuts to the tree add up, and eventually the tree will topple. Now, when you listen to the chatter that's going around in the world around you, the, the chatter around you, what do you hear? The online discussion, the, the people interviewing and wanting to be seen as, they, as they, they're talking or they're, they're yelling, you hear lots of outrage. It's directed at the government. It's directed at the, the people who are in the other tribe, the enemy tribe. You hear a lot of outrage. You also hear a lot of fear. We've got to stop this. We've got to stop them because if we don't, what will happen? But you need to understand this lesson from the text. No one gets away with anything. Nobody. God sees it all. God will deal justice. He's patient. He can wait a hundred years. And that, that's true for the, the person who's at work, who's a liar, that's making your, your career miserable. That's true with the chaos actor in your home. But when you understand that no one gets away with anything, your outrage won't become excessive. You, you'll be able to leave evil in God's hands, in the hands of the judge of the earth who will do right. You won't be fired up with outrage and take revenge because you know that vengeance is the Lord's and he will surely act. And so look at two aspects of this divine judgment here in the text. We see that the, the divine judgment that's coming, it's universal. We see it's universal. And then secondly, we see that the coming divine judgment it's also unexpected. It's universal and it's unexpected. First, look at, look at how it's, it's universal. The, the coming divine judgment is universal. Now, depending on how you count it, in this text, maybe five times, maybe seven times, it says God will or God does destroy all living things. It, it's almost excessive. Five, seven times. Every human being, every land animal, every sky creature, it and, and that means it was everything, everyone. It did not matter how strong you were. It, it didn't matter how wealthy you were and, and how much treasure and how much you'd collected and you'd, you'd amassed. It didn't matter how beautiful you were, how handsome you were. It didn't matter how skilled you were. It didn't matter how young you were. Every person was destroyed. So it was universal. Secondly, the, the coming divine judgment here, it's unexpected. You could have been really old, really old. You were, you were dying of old age and then the flood and you died. But you also could have been one day away from getting married. You could have just graduated from your program and then the flood. You could have just purchased a brand new cart and donkey and you never got to drive it because you were killed in the flood. It was unexpected. Jesus, in Matthew 24, he, he describes the, the vibe, the energy in those days of of just before God's judgment fell and the flood destroyed the world. Matthew 24, verse 38, Jesus says, in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. Nobody knew that it was their last day and that it was over. You can't escape death. It's true then, it's true now. Every person in this room, there's a date. It's, it's almost like it's in a sealed envelope somewhere, a date when you will die. 
And if that date was revealed, if you were to receive this envelope and open it up, you could pencil that date onto a calendar and, and hang it up. Maybe it'll be when you turn 88 and you'll just die peacefully in your sleep. Maybe it'll be when you're only eight years old and you'll die in an accident. And, and I, don't want, I don't want that to happen to any of you. One of my friends was only 44 years old when he died. He was a lawyer and he was a professor. He was a father. He was a, a very fit and athletic man. And he was just taking his habitual jog through the woods when he unexpectedly, in the middle of his run, died of a brain aneurysm. Those people in the days of Noah never saw their death coming. Never saw it coming. Some of them were at a wedding feast. Some of them were at a family reunion. They did not understand, Jesus says. They did not understand until the flood came and took them away. At the core of the Christian faith, we believe that Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world as a human baby. We believe that Jesus grew up, that he lived a blameless life, that that he died. He was crucified by the government. He was accused by the church. And that Jesus rose on the third day and that he ascended into heaven and we believe this, we believe that he will come again to judge all the people of the world, to send those who reject him to eternal destruction and we believe that he will also come to receive those who love him into his heaven. And the day when Jesus Christ returns is also on the calendar. No person but God knows that day but Jesus says that day That day, he says, it will be like the day of Noah. People will be eating and drinking. People will be falling in love, marrying, seeing their kids get married. And Jesus will interrupt your life. You won't expect it. Are you you ready for that interruption? That's a day that will be universal. It'll be for everyone, for everyone. Your life on earth ends on that day. That day will be unexpected. You... I don't know what you'll be doing on that day. You might be in church singing praises to God when he interrupts. You might be fornicating when he interrupts. No one knows the day or the hour. Jesus said they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Are you ready for that? Are you? We've looked at the divine judgment Now let's look at the gracious covenant that's here. This is chapter 6, verse 18, into chapter 7, verse 6. And here we've got this technical word, covenant. Now that word is very important in the Bible. And in a real way, the the message of the entire Bible, the one story of the Bible, it centers around covenant. And so it's an important word to understand. What, What is a covenant? Okay, here's another definition. Here's another definition. A covenant is a one sided Commitment from God to bless undeserving people. A one-sided commitment from God to bless undeserving people and, and that covenant begins a personal relationship between God and the covenant party and that covenant comes with obligations. So it's a commitment, it's one-sided, it's for blessing, it begins a relationship and it comes with obligations. In our days, we, we just don't have a word, we don't have a, a concept or a situation that really describes that or matches the way we live and and transact. Maybe the flavor of the covenant, you could illustrate it this way. It's, It's kind of like the relationship that obtains between a parent and a child. The parent's relationship with the child is kind of like a covenant. The mother or the father on their side 
in some ways, one-sidedly, they've imposed it because they brought the child into the world. And, and, and the mother and the father are committed to bless the child, to work for the child's good. The parents implicitly say, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to sacrifice so that you can have educational opportunities. I'm going to give up my freedom so that you can have a richer childhood. And so it's this one-sided commitment for the good of, of the child. And, and the parent implicitly is saying this, expecting this, I will enter into a relationship with you as well. And you, my son, my daughter, you have some obligation towards me to take seriously what I say as your mom, to take seriously what I, I say as, as your dad. Now that's something of the flavor of this technical usage of, of covenant. The Lord enters covenant with individuals, with groups. He commits himself to their welfare, to a personal connection with them. Now here in verse 18, the Lord says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Now this covenant, this covenant that God establishes with Noah and his family, it's entirely gracious. The Lord God is the one who takes the initiative. The Lord God commits to do good for them. There are some obligations with it. There's definitely a relationship that's personal between God and Noah. And the Lord God approaches Noah. The Lord is the one who tells Noah to build the ark, who sets up this whole way that Noah will be delivered. This, this ark that's going to save the lives of Noah, his family, and the creatures when the flood kills everything on the earth. And it's the Lord who sends the animals to Noah, and it's the Lord who shuts the door, closes them safely into the ark once the rain begins to fall. It's entirely gracious. It's, it's all on God's side. Now, you might ask, well, how is this exactly grace? Isn't grace completely undeserved? And the text says in Genesis 7, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And, and what God is saying there is, of all the people on the planet, and who knows how many people there were, but we know the world had been going for at least 1,500 years at this point, and people had been living for centuries and having kids. Of all the people on the planet, God saw, God selected one person, Noah. And we, we, we saw in previous weeks, Noah was a person who walked with God. And, and Noah was distinctively right living in the sight of God. Noah was a standout in his generation. Now, I don't, I don't think it's helpful to debate whether Noah deserved to be spared, deserved to be in this covenant because he was righteous. I just don't think it's helpful to debate that. But we can see that the covenant is gracious when we look at the other seven people in this covenant. Verse 18, the covenant is gracious to these seven people who are not noted as righteous, not noted as ones who walk with God. He says, God says, this covenant is to you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. And this, this covenant theme just repeats over and over. It, it's, there's, a, there's a familiar resonating pattern to it as you read through the one story that is the Bible, the covenant with Abraham. It's gracious. God commits himself deeply to a flawed man and graciously is going to bless Abraham and all of his descendants. It's the same way with the covenant with Noah, Moses. The Lord commits himself to a people to do good to them and to do life with them. 
But not because they're grace. great. It's gracious. They were small. They were flawed. They were nothing. Undistinguished. It was just grace. And then the covenant with David. God commits himself again to a deeply flawed man. He, he has strong, good attributes, but he's deeply flawed, deeply sinful. God commits himself to David in a covenant and graciously is going to bless the sons of David and give a son a kingdom which will never end. And so you see the gracious covenant here with Noah and the gracious covenant more large scale that God is enacting through the story of the Bible. Now, we turn to a cleansing flood, a flood that kills and cleanses. This is chapter 7, verses 17 through 24. The world we hear is corrupted. All of humanity corrupted. And so God is going to cleanse the entire world of its corruption Waters of judgment will do it. Waters of judgment and cleansing will cover all the earth. All living things not in the ark of Noah will drown. And so Noah and his little family, they obey the Lord. They enter the ark. And and we see here just tangentially, families are important. And God sends male and female from every land and air creature into that ark. And then it begins to rain. Not for four hours. Not for four days but for 40 days. You can just do a little bit of math. If it was a hard rain, night and day, and maybe in one minute you got an inch of water, and that went on hour after hour, minute after minute, hour after hour, for 40 days, that would be about a mile deep of water, and that's just from the rain. The rain comes down, but there's also not just the rain. There are these these fountains of the earth. Maybe they were like geysers that just opened up And water comes up from the earth. It's coming down from above. It's coming up from the earth. And so, so much water fills the earth that even the highest mountain is seven yards under the surface. And so Noah, his wife, his sons, his sons' wives, along with these animals, they sit in that ark. They sit in the ark for 150 days while the rest of the earth dies underwater. Now, Noah and his family cannot see anything that is happening. They can only see one thing. There's only one window, and it's not on the side. It's in the roof. So they can't see all the death and destruction around them. Noah can't see the flood. He can't see the drowning people. He can't see the flooded lands and buildings. Noah can only look up and wait. Now what happened over that half year, those 150 days? Verse 23, So he, the Lord, destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. Now, there are some things in history that repeat, that happen over and over. When you read world history, nations rise, nations fall. People come, people go. In the history of Noah, every person on earth lost all all of their possessions. Their careers were wiped out. Their social networks were destroyed. They they had all of their property taken away from them. And every person lost their lives. Unless you were in the ark. That event will repeat itself. On the final day, Jesus Christ will return. He will interrupt your life. And in a sense, you're going to be like the people on that day. You'll be naked on that day. Every earthly thing that you possess will be gone. You won't stand before God with 
armfuls of your diplomas and your financial accounts printing out, printouts and all your stuff. You're going to have nothing. In the, in the New Testament, Peter writes, 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, Scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. He's saying people will ridicule this idea of the return of Jesus. People will make fun of it. They'll say nothing like that, nothing like this final judgment, nothing like that ever happened. And then Peter continues, verse 5, For this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Peter says they intentionally leave out this from their scoffing, that once before God brought sudden and universal judgment upon the world. Then Peter continues, verse 7, but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire, reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Peter's saying that Just as in the time of Noah, God destroyed all things with water, in the second coming of Christ, God will destroy and purge all things with fire. And there's no no bunker that will be fireproof enough to, to hide your gold, to hide your collections. Everything, even down to the elemental material, everything will be burned in that fire. And so, what can you do? What what can you do? It's it's scary. It's sobering. The entire world will be purged with fire and, and people will die again. I, I, I could die. I could die in my sleep. My big, one of my big fears as a child was that I would die in the middle of the night. I, 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 the lights were out. I was in bed and I would just lie there awake thinking, what if I die in the middle of the night? What if I die? What, what if I can't breathe and I die in the middle of the night? And it's the same sort of situation that, that Peter's presenting. How can I survive the flood? How, how can I survive this fire? You need an ark. You need, you need an ark where you can be safe from the, the cleansing, killing, flood, and fire. In the gospel, Jesus is the true ark. In the gospel, he's the only place to hide when the destruction of God falls upon the earth. And, and Jesus will take you take you in and keep you above the waters when the whole world drowns. How? How could he do that? It's because Jesus in the gospel is also the true Noah whose perfect rightness God saw and who entered a covenant to save the human race. The covenant was that Jesus would perish so that you who believe could have everlasting life. Is it because you deserve it? It's because you deserve it. No, that would be impossible. It's of grace. Jesus deserved it. 
You're the, you're the unnoted wife, unnamed wife of Noah. You're the unnoted wives of the sons of Noah. You're the undeserving sons of Noah who are swept up into safety in this gracious covenant. Jesus is the only truly righteous person in the entire world who meets the approval of God and by taking on himself the total destruction and disapproval of God on that cross, now God commits himself to you in a covenant of favor and of safety. Are you in Christ? Are, are you in that ark? Are, are, you, are you looking up, looking up through the only window to God? Is Jesus your ark? Have you come to him? Not have you come to this wooden boat, but have you come to the wooden cross believing that the righteousness of one other man has gained you favor with God? If you have, what does that mean for you? And we'll close with just two things briefly. Both of them taken from the same passage in Second Peter. What does it mean for you if this is true? If you've come into the ark of Christ? Well, first of all, it be, you, you become a particular kind of patient person. You become a particular kind of patient person. Second Peter 3, verse 8, he says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God waited 100 years so that eight people could be saved. And God made delayed justice for a thousand years so that the final people will be gathered to himself. Can you be patient like that? Can you keep looking up through the window for God to set right the mess in your life and in this world, all the injustice, all of the lies. And, and can, you, can you trust patiently in him? And, and as you do that, here, here's another way that this is a peculiar kind of patience. As you're waiting, do you have a heart that all should come to repentance? Can, can, can you, as you wait patiently with this kind of patience, can you build in this world, like, like you're building an ark, building up the church, adding to the, the good works of the church of Christ. Can you invite those around you into it as you're patiently waiting for the day of the Lord, inviting in those who will die and suffer the loss of everything unless they find rescue, unless they find their security in Christ. You become this kind of peculiar patient person who acts as you wait to bring people to Christ. And the second thing that we've seen from Peter you live like today is your last day. You live like today is your last day. Second Peter 3, verse 11. He says, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what kind of person ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Peter says, he says, all this stuff, all of this stuff, 
in which we find so much of our significance, it's all temporary. It will vaporize when it's put to the fire. But to know Jesus, to have Jesus, that is something that will last. And to be, to be transformed into him so that you have his outlook and, and you have him working out in your person, that will survive the fire. To be found in him, to be like in him, My dear, dear people, I'm confident of this very thing about you all, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. May he come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we we spend so much of our concern and energy trying to get things and trying to hold on to things that ultimately will be taken from us. And we're thankful for the good, even if it's temporary. But Lord, we don't want to find our treasure and our hope in all of that. We don't want our joy to be based in any of that. Lord, we pray that you would renew in us again the joy of our salvation. And we look forward to the day when we will see Jesus face to face and all that we have wept over will be wiped away from our eyes and we will have joy, a joy that we don't have to qualify. We pray, Lord, that we would live in light of that glorious day that you have graciously covenanted to bring us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.